Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mindful Metal Jacket. My name is Joe List, and I am happy that you are listening. And I appreciate uh, all the kind words that came about recently as we uh, changed into the new year. Recorded an episode with uh, my wife, Sarah Talamash, last week. And uh, we encouraged folks to reach out. And uh, you did. And it was really kind and nice. And I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, you made me feel wonderful. I'm back to uh, hating myself now, of course. How are you guys doing? Are you doing New Year's resolutions? Are you keeping them up? Be careful with them. They can uh, be fueled by self-hatred. I highly recommend uh, the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris. Uh, he's doing a special thing this month. Uh, I like to promote podcasts that are struggling. Um, it's, I'm just kidding. It's a very successful podcast. Anyways, but it's um, people will get mad at you if you if you plug successful things. I get shit for being like, yeah, why don't you keep pushing Sam Harris? Like, that guy needs more money. I'm like, well, it's helpful. It's a good good show, good app. Dan Harris is not related to Sam, but his podcast is great. In the month of January, they're doing a self-love um, situation. I don't know, special month-long thing. And uh, it's really been helping me because... As you know, I hate myself and check out my special called I Hate Myself on YouTube if you haven't already. And um, I don't know, I have that thing where you just, it's never enough, you're not enough. And, uh, you know, uh, no matter what I do in a day, I think I could have done more or should have done more. Do you guys have that? I'm sure you do. I think we all do, which is helpful to think we all have it. It's comforting. But anyways... I have this, uh, I've probably said it before on the podcast, but I'm sure I have this meditation that I do, this Buddhist sort of mantra, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Just a friendly reminder that we have the tools for happiness, and content, inner peace, without needing to accomplish anything or do anything or purchase anything. But uh, it's easy to forget. So I hope that you're doing that, and I'm here to remind you that you are enough. Hmm? Um, anyways, thanks for listening. I hope you're subscribed. I hope you spread the word. Leave a nice review. And uh, this week, this is a really fun episode. Uh, I actually recorded it a few weeks ago before the Christmas holiday break. Uh, my special guest today is comedian, actor, Adam Ferrara, who... I'm sure you know of. If you don't, you absolutely should. Uh, Adam is one of my favorite comedians. He is one of these people that's just pure funny. Always funny. Um, I first heard of Adam, I think, from Comics Come Home, like 20 years ago. He was on the Dennis Leary's Comics Come Home. He was on the album. I thought he was so funny then. I went to a live to the show uh, at the Orpheum Theater, I think comics come home way back then probably 2002 and he was on that and he was great and you probably know him from the tv show the job and a bunch of other stuff but he's a fantastic actor fantastic comedian i'm uh happy to know him we had a great episode he made me laugh a lot we talked about our upbringing he's from long they're very similar upbringings he's from long island i'm from massachusetts of course and um yeah we talked about the anxiety of starting comedy, of family, dealing with family, the disconnection with family. And uh, I also asked him about 
anxiety and acting and scenes. And uh, that was fascinating. I'm fascinated by that process. So I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Adam has his own podcast called 30 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. And um, I did that. I'm a, I'm a guest on that podcast. And you may have noticed as a bonus episode, you can hear that uh, on this feed in the Mindful Metal Jacket. We're doing a little cross promotion. Um, so check that out. Definitely subscribe to his podcast. It's really great. He's had like huge guests on. Um, uh, so go check that out. Go subscribe and go listen and check out Adam's comedy if you haven't already because it's absolutely hilarious and I think you'll laugh during this episode because uh, we had a lot of fun. So yeah, that's it. Thanks. Thanks for listening and um, yeah, be kind to yourself. It's not easy. I'm working on it. I'm trying to do this uh, self-compassion business every morning. You know, repeat the phrase, may you be happy. May you have inner peace. May you be free from suffering. And um, I don't know. I think it helps. I can't tell. But um, as you know, one of my favorite Buddhist authors is Jack Cornfield. And I thought I would read a quote from him today. His book, The Wise Heart, really helped me in that time of that I needed help and um, here's a little quote from him that might help you if your compassion does not include yourself it is incomplete hmm? have a little compassion for yourself folks you're doing great you're listening to this podcast that's nice that's helpful me helpful to me I appreciate you I love you Enjoy this uh, interview or conversation. I prefer conversation. Enjoy this conversation with my friend, the hilarious Adam Forever. We're starting late. I apologize. And, you know, I like to talk anxiety here. This is anxiety to me. I'm like, I'll order food 1255. It'll get here at 1230 and then I'll be done eating and we'll record. And then they kept telling me it was going to be later and later. And then I couldn't find the email chain. So I emailed you from three different locations, freaking out. And I apologize. Yeah. Joe, for, let's yes. start with this. Hi. Hello. Sorry. How are you? Listen, the reason I'm here is I got your food. You want me to bring it in? <laughs> it, it came. I ate. Okay, you ate. Good. Yeah. Right. I ate half my food. And I, I hate to think if you're this anxious on, on, on an empty stomach. I mean, on a full stomach. I imagine on an empty stomach, you'd be anxiety ridden and angry. Do you get angry if you don't eat? Yeah. Well, I've realized recently through therapy that most of my anxiety is actually anger. It's like suppressed anger. And I just, I get uh, anxious. I, I don't like, you know, confrontation, but I'm actually what just. Flag, drag, ang, or what, what is the, have you detected the source of your anger? Do you have a suspicion? Is it because you're not, you feel like you're not being heard or you feel like your food is late? What, what triggers it? <laughs> uh, it's both of those things. I think it's, uh, 
It's definitely the uh, sorry. My wife's making her lunch in the other room. If you hear beeping, it's she's got some nerve. That woman <laughs> while you're sitting there hungry. Um, it's definitely the not feeling heard. My family, you know, you come from a big family. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. I was I was the youngest for a while. Um, because I come from a big you know Boston thing where my my mother has four siblings and all their kids have kids. And then we would always be together. Like, I, yeah, I don't yeah. know about you. Like you're, you're an Italian guy, right? Yes, I am. Were you always the whole family together? 25 people or what? Well, depending on who makes parole, tons of people. <laughs> yeah. It was a whole big thing. In my, it was always, cause my father was the youngest. So uh, we were always, the, we were the youngest kids. Uh, uh, my, my, both his brothers are older. So those are my older cousins on that side. I was, my mother was the oldest. So I was the oldest. We were the oldest children on that side of the family, but the families would all mix up and everything. And, and uh, yeah, that, that, in fact, I miss it, Joe. I miss it, especially now at the holidays. I miss not having a house full of people. I'm not having, you know, all those people around. Yeah. I was just watching yesterday. Plus I moved out here for, I'm, I'm out here, meaning California. So I'm in California now. Right. Yeah, I was just watching. Yeah. Um, we keep having a little sound thing. I don't know if it's coming on through your end or my end, but it goes. It does like a skippy. Are you hearing that? Uh, is it latency? You got me. Yeah, I think I think yours is like a delay on you, maybe. Or I'm crazy. Uh, it, is my voice lining up, or do I look like an old kung fu movie? No, now now it's lining up. But there was like a. It looked you like just a froze. You opened your mouth. And you just froze. Yeah, fucking it's... this whole thing up, list. I think maybe it's my Wi-Fi. I don't know what's going on. Hold on. Let me close right. some things. Oh, I suck. You're I really, all right. I really stink. Take it easy. <laughs> hey, stop beating yourself up. Good good point. But no, I was watching a thing yesterday. Can you hear me? Am I moving? Am I is things happening? I can hear you. I can hear you. I'm just I'm just I'm not interested. <laughs> I was watching. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get you to trying to break you out of this. All right, hello. No, I was watching yesterday. I was watching Sanjay Gupta. Do you know that fella? The Indian I do. Gentleman. He's a, news. Yeah, he's a doctor, and uh, he does this show called Chasing Life, and it's all about mm-hmm. how to live and all that bullshit. And he was in Italy, and they were they were all like these people that are all 110. And uh-huh. they're, they're drinking wine and eating chicken parm. And they're all like, it's about being together. We're all together. It's family. And uh-huh. I was having this moment of like, oh, my God, we're all going to die because it's just me and my wife here looking at each uh-huh. other like assholes. We need 30 right. people in the room. Let me ask you something. Do you really want to live to 110? Um, well, these people were like playing bocce and pool and shit. That seems fun. Okay. But for I 110 mean, years? I mean, I could do maybe best out of five. <laughs> I mean, I would like to get in a good... 75 feels nice. You make it to 75. That's something. Uh-huh. But I wouldn't mind doing 90 if I can still walk and blink and shit. Yeah, I don't want I don't want things to be diminished. Uh, I don't want to have less of a quality. Of, I, don't, I don't want a longer life if it means less of a quality of life. Right. It's better to burn out than to fade away. That's not me. Did you just? Oh, I thought you came up with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would rather have a, I would rather have a, a better quality of life rather than just, just being around, you know? Right. But these guys over there in Italy, they're all in the mountains. They talk about that. They walk up the mountain every day. So that's uh-huh. healthy. And then they have a little bit of wine. But I was never that was never my forte. I was a drink all the wine and take a shit on the rug kind of guy. Um, that was more my that's thing. Good. We want you around at 90. That's great. <laughs> Grandpa Joe. Hey, it's Grandpa Joe. Watch your shoes. <laughs> 
Um, but they say, you know, it's being together, family, all that stuff. How about this stat, yeah. by the way? In yeah. Italy, seven or in one part of Italy, uh, Sardinia, whatever, 70% of people 35 and younger still live at home with their parents. What do you think of that? Yeah. yeah. Italians, they don't. They paste. They paint the basement red and green. They put another kitchen, and they live in their own basement. They don't even use the whole house. Italians <laughs> don't travel. Columbus had to go to Spain to get the boats. Joe, I dated a girl. My wife and I love the story. I dated a girl who was Italian, and like mm. the, whole, the whole thing, Boston Italian, the black curly hair, the the whole sure. thing, and. She was older than me. I was 23 at the time. She was 27, I think, or 26. Mm -hmm. And she still lived at home. I had an apartment in Everett, Mass. And one night she had to be home and had a curfew and all this stuff, which I thought was really strange because I was just wild. Mm -hmm. And we fell asleep on my bed and she woke up and I woke up to her going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. We fell asleep and it was like home alone. It was like Kevin McAllister's parents. She's like, we fell asleep and she like woke me up and threw water in my face. And I had to drive her home at like three in the morning. And there was three shadows, like her parents and brother were all in the window, just shaking their head. And she was like crossing herself, like, oh my God, good luck. I hope I get to see you again. And I was like, this, this isn't going to work. Was this 20, she was 27 years old. 27. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> we, we didn't last much longer, but that was what I was like. Is this what Italian is? Is Joe, this you be, Joe? Joe, you're better off. Yeah, you're better off. You, I, I'd say I, I had a curfew too, but you know, I was in junior high, <laughs> you know. So I, well, my curfew was my, and my father used to go to bed like nine o'clock because he had to get up early in the morning, uh, drive in from Long Island to the city to go to work. So I had to be in at nine o'clock, and my father didn't want to wake up. He's like, I'm going to bed. I'm setting my alarm for nine o'clock. Tonight, you better turn it off before I do. Oh, wow. Which means That's fun. I had to get home. I had to go into his bedroom, turn the alarm off so it didn't wake him up. If that alarm went off, it meant I wasn't home and he was going to kill me. Wow. Oh, that's a really good yeah. method. That's fun. Did it ever yeah, go yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Fear. That's a really good method. <laughs> Ruled by terror. Yeah. Did it, did My it ever... father and Stalin, same thing. No, <laughs> I, no, I. Psh. Pulled the plug, I the whole thing. I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting, uh, getting burned that way. Oh. But yeah, well, I had a big, I had a big family, Joe. I had a, uh, it was funny. I, I had my mother on my podcast um, for Thanksgiving. That was my Thanksgiving special because I couldn't fly home. So I called my mother, and all the old stories came out. And uh, this one story, I actually, I, I made my mother tell the story from her point of view. I learned this uh, when my dad was dying. My, my dad passed away, but when he was dying. I was with them for the whole ride, Joe. And uh, it's about three in the morning. It's really near the end. He, he was in a lot of pain. He couldn't sleep. And I stayed in the room with him. So I finally, it's about three in the morning. I finally get him to the point where he's about to fall asleep. And and he knew. We we, we both knew that, you know, the clock's running. So he looked at me. He goes, ah, you know, if the stories are true here, I'll get to see my father again. I don't know if I'm going to see my grandfather, though, because... I think he killed the guy and he fell asleep. Wow. This is what he leaves me with Joe. So I, I can't wake him up. It took me an hour and a half to get him to sleep. I can't wake him up. So he falls asleep. I put the blanket over him and I'm shaking like this. I go out. My mother's in the kitchen. She's making a cup of tea. She's in a robe. I go, ma, ma, great grandpa killed the guy. Adam, don't listen to your father. <laughs> he never killed nobody. 
He was just a wheel man. What? <laughs> yes, he drove the car. They robbed something. It went bad. He did a dime upstate, and that's how we got the bungalow in Port Jeff. Believe wow. me, if you take somebody out, you get a bigger payday than that piece of shit house in Sound Beach. Go to bed. <laughs> Is that a true story? True story. My what? wife found it in the newspaper. She found it in the New York Times. Wow. So, yeah, that was a true story. So that one, and, and, and so I found that story out. But that bungalow, that little place in Port Jeff was where all my entire family would show up, you know, because we didn't have anything. So we had that little house. Right. And uh, I, I vaguely remember it, Joe. I was really, really little. Um, but yeah, they, they would all come out. I, I remember ping pong tables. They had two like big ping pong tables with food all over the place and people running around and uh, smoke hanging in the air and people playing cards and music playing. And uh, yeah, I remember that. So yeah, it was, it was a big, big family. Yeah. See, that's what we had too. I, and I always laugh. I hear people say, they'll go, I got to go to, um, a family reunion. We have a, we're flying to Omaha and my whole family. I'm like, we, my family was never not together. That was yeah. like Sunday. Yeah. I'm the first one to leave. Yeah. Same here. No one, no yeah. one has been outside of 128 in Massachusetts inside my family, mm -hmm. which I always laugh because everyone in my family will say, this is the best restaurant in the world. They got the best, best burgers in the world. <laughs> I'm like, you guys have traveled 45 miles total yeah. in your lives. But we got six blocks. That's it. <laughs> six blocks. No, but that was my family, which is good and bad to grow up that way, I think, because you have a lot of uh, personalities and stuff, but it was hard to get the floor. I mean, I was the, the youngest of everybody and no one was interested in what I was saying. I, I, I felt maybe I misinterpreted so, that, so that. That's the source of your that's the source of the anger that causes your anxiety, you suspect? I think that's a big part of it. Also, like sort of being dismissed or not taking serious when they do listen, they're like, oh, he doesn't know he's an idiot over there. He's he's stupid or wh or whatever. That's the way I'm interpreting it. Um, but there's sort of a lot of that and a lot of, uh, I guess, just criticism, micromanagement, um, controlling a lot of feeling very micromanaged throughout my youth. And that made me go, I'm getting the, I'm getting the hell out of here. And that's and that's what comedy is to me is. You have complete control. I'm the only one. No one can tell me anything. I'm sorry, Joe. I wasn't listening at all. <laughs> kidding. Yeah, no, it was, I, that's interesting that you didn't feel heard and comedy is, uh, it, it fills that void. It fills a void for me as well, Joe. Um, and it's not that, well, I shouldn't say it, it fills a, a void. It's, it, it's, it's a place where I feel at home. If that makes any sense. I remember the first time I was on stage, my open mic, and I got a laugh. And I went, this is it. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I belong here. Right. You know, I don't know how long it's going to but this feels, it was like being totally present. And for me, it came out of, it, it was a familiar feeling when I first saw Pryor, Richard Pryor. I was 12 years old. Um, and my mom and dad, we went to the, my, my dad did kitchens and bathrooms. So he did construction, he, he did that in people's houses. So a lot of times uh, we became friends with the people that my father worked, you know, that hired my dad because we were always in the house and I was running around and, and I was working on there. So we were in these people's homes. So it wasn't unusual for us to see these people socially. So we went to this house that my father put the kitchen in. And it was one of those parties where your mother gives you the warning in the car before you walk into the house. Like, now your father does business with these people. Behave yourself and don't clog the toilet, you know? <laughs> so we get in there. 
they go down in the basement and they watch Richard Pryor on on uh, uh, on TV. They had it was the Santa Monica concert when uh, uh, it's live in concert when um, Patti LaBelle opened for him, and the kids weren't allowed in, so we run around outside, whatever it was. The parents go up to have coffee. I snuck in to uh, these people's uh, um, den and I pushed a uh, play on the VCR and I saw the concert and I was, oh, Joe, I was alone. I was standing up, staring at the screen. My mouth was open. And I remember saying out loud to nobody, I'm like, look what this man can do. Right. I just remember those words coming out of my mouth. And I, I didn't know I wanted to be a comic. I didn't know anything. I just knew that for some reason, this was important. Right. And I think it was the first time I actually felt totally present. And when I got my first laugh, that familiar feeling came back to me. It was the first time I felt that feeling since that moment. So I went, all right, I'm going to ride this horse as long as I can. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have a um, similar kind of feeling where, A, for me, I was seeing George Carlin on HBO and I was young as well. And similarly being like, wow, this is like unbelievable. Uh -huh. And but also with the family thing, I think I told the story before, maybe on the this podcast, but I remember like so I grew up I'm 38. So I was a kid, late 80s, early 90s. And uh -huh. it was comedy boom, VH1 and, and uh, comedy channel and all that good stuff. And, um, you know, evening at the improv and my family, I remember would rent they rented like Robin Williams or Louis Anderson or Gallagher mm -hmm. or George Carlin. And that would be the night. Everyone would come over and the VHS would like sit on top of the TV and it would be like, we're going to eat dinner. And then that's what we're doing. We're watching this. And for me, it was the only time my family seemed to be having fun that mm -hmm. drinking. It would be everyone was serious. And, you know, our, our, our jobs suck and raising kids sucks and, and life is miserable. But tonight we're going to pop on this video and everyone would die laughing. And I didn't get a lot of the jokes. But there is certainly a conscious or subconscious thing where I'm like, okay, that's how you get the attention of everyone in my family. And that's how you break the monotony of life. And so that's why it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. All right, let me ask you this. What is your, is there a predominant business that your family's in? Because Italians, it's constructions, kitchens, bathrooms, that kind of stuff. That's what, yeah. that's what most so there's a bunch of this, three firemen in my family. We have a big fireman kind of family. Um, okay. Yeah, two uncles, and then like people you call an uncle, but then it was like a little bit, you know, a, a secretary. And... Uncle. And if anybody asks, he's been here since eight o'clock. Okay, we got, good. I can we have uncles too. We have so many fake uncles. Everyone's an uncle yeah. there. Um, but yeah, and then oh, it's all kind name, of. Name, we had all those uncles in the neighborhood, and they they were allowed to hit you too if you stepped out of line. <laughs> um... I, Joe, I had to go to the next town over to buy cigarettes and condoms. I couldn't buy it at the drugstore. My aunt, they would have told everybody. <laughs> they let, I was a kid. My father used to send me to get, get him cigarettes, pack of Lucky Strikes. And the, and the guy would sell them to me because he knew it was from my dad. I went in and I go, I need a pack of Marlboro. Get out of here. It ain't for your father. Like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, so we had, yeah, it, it was all sort of plumber, construction, mechanic, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Very, uh, very blue collar. The reason kind of I asked that is because I had the same thing. The blue, I don't have that mechanical ability that yeah. if then go to statement, I mean, I worked in my father's business and everything and I could do little stuff, but I couldn't lead a job, you know? So in my eyes, I was less than in my dad, especially with cars. Like I love cars, uh, but I can't fix them. And now that the carburetor is gone, you should just, you just lift the hood. There should just be a sign. Call the guy. You're going to mess this up. Just call the guy. So, but my father could fix everything. So I always felt less than. 
So cut to my first time on stage. Um, my entire neighborhood showed up to see me do comedy for the first time because I made the mistake of telling my mother. My mother was the original Twitter. <laughs> she would tell an aunt, an aunt would tell everybody, and everybody was there. We sold out on a Wednesday night just to see me do my five minutes that I didn't even know what I was doing. And uh, the next day I went to my father's office. I went into the shop and he was running a, he was, he was running a table saw and he stopped the table saw and he looked at me. And Joe, he looked at me like, I never saw a look on his face like, oh, okay, we found it. This is what you got to do. You know, he didn't say those words, but that was the feeling I got. So I found out that I could contribute by being funny. Like every, when I was a kid, I could make, I could always make people laugh, especially my dad. And that was one of the laughs I loved to get because that look on his face went away. Right. You know, that aggravation, that worried look and that, that the, the angst went away. And he was a big man. My father, my father was a water heater with a head. He was just this big presence. And, uh, and when I made him laugh, he had a laugh that would fill a room and it was like Gleason. So it was infectious. So if you could make pop laugh, then everyone in the house was just like, oh, it's, it's okay. The bear's happy, you know? Right, right. So that, that's how I fit in. So that was interesting. You said that that's how you fit in. That's why I asked the question about the, is there a family business? Because I didn't connect to it. Yeah, so no. Connect. I had the same exact experience that and, and the same thing with everyone's knows how to fix a car in my family, even if they're not a mechanic and build a thing. They've all built their own house and porch and shed. And yeah. it took years for me until recently I had that feeling of like, well, I'm not a man. That's I, I don't know how to do these things. That's what a man does. And then I realized in my 30s, no, I'm, I'm a man. I make I did what I want to do. They're all miserable. I made sure I was happy and I can afford to pay someone to go do all those things. I get all those yeah. things done. I just give it to some guy and go, hey, you fix yeah. you fucking put the the uh, the TV on a wall. And yeah. that's pretty manly to me, paying somebody else to do shit you don't want to do. That's the ultimate man move, if you ask me. I'm going to give you money. It's got pictures of dead men on it, okay? <laughs> that's what kind of man I am. I mean... Yeah, I, I, I got pushed. I got... Um, it was funny you said about, about you feel less of... You feel less than, and then that always attacks your masculinity because you're a guy. Um, I always <laughs> felt that because I'm doing this, I had the courage to leave. You know, I had the curse of the league, but they, they're still there. They're still back in Long Island, you know? Right. And it was, it was, you would shit on people that left. You would shit on people that would address the miserable feelings or shit on people that would address the anxiety. Because if you're, if you're a guy, you don't admit it's there. I remember, I remember telling my father, I said, pop, I'm depressed. I'm not happy. Welcome to earth. You know, that's it. My father would tell me, you think too much. You know what you got to do? Get a mortgage. Put a bank on your back for 30 years. That'll focus you. Okay, great. So I I consider anyone addressing their, their what goes on in their head to be better or, to, get, or, to, or to, to kill that dragon. That's pretty courageous to me. And it's not it's not encouraged in my family. Yeah, same. I mean, that's the, it sounds so similar because I, I'm the same way. I'm from Massachusetts. They're all still there. No one's ever left. And yeah, it, it took a lot for me to go, first of all, to get out of there. And that was my biggest fear was the fear of living that kind of life to me. I was afraid of everything. But to me, the biggest fear was being stuck in a job you hate and, and living, you know, down the street from where you grew up and no disrespect to people that do that. I just didn't want to do that. I didn't, I was so yeah, afraid of being unhappy. My, it wasn't my life. It wasn't my, 
I, I would not have been happy there. I, it's not what I'm supposed to be doing. So whatever the master plan is, I wasn't playing my part. Right. And I think that's why, and I'll ask you, do you feel like you weren't being heard because you weren't contributing or you were saying stuff that didn't resonate or were you saying stuff that wasn't authentic to you? I think I was saying stuff that didn't resonate. I didn't feel connected and still don't a lot of the times. I just mm -hmm. felt like, oh, this is not how I feel I'll about anything. This whole conversation, Joe, you're a little distant. Um, <laughs> no, it was me like with between whether it be politics, music, movies, yeah. psych everything. I was like, I feel different than that. I feel the opposite of that. And it felt yeah. like this is crazy to me. Um, but I was gripped by... Um, entertained by by film and by music and uh -huh. Springsteen who's behind me. I was like, you know, Springsteen's like, we got to get out of here. And uh, tramps like us, all that was like, yeah. I mean, from, to the time I was, you know, 10 or 11. So that was like more in my head than anything from. Let me ask family. you something. When you were a kid and the screen door slammed, did your dress wave? It did. It did. It did. And and I mean, like, it's a town full of losers and I'm pulling out of here to win. I mean, that really has been like the basis of my life. It's still in my mind all the time. No offense to the people from that town, but, you know. Well, here's the, the thing I did get is I left. Um, I left. I mean, I went. First of all, I, I grew up on Long Island and my my grandparents and my parents were all in Queens and Manhattan, the city. So they they left to go out to the suburbs and we all fought like hell to get back in. I still got an apartment in New York because I wanted to get back into the city. You know, right. I wanted to um, just to experience that. It was just, it, it was, it was leaving, leaving the whole environment. I, like I said, I was, I, not only did I leave, I moved to California. I got, I got a TV deal when I was a kid, when I was a comic. So I left, I went this way, you know, and uh, it was the, I was the first one in a long line of, I was the first one to go to college and that was all my dad. My dad knew enough to push me to do it. My dad knew that not, not, not that the, the, the neighborhood life was a dead end, but to push and to, to be more. I mean, my, my father told me, Joe, I was like, look, my job is to give you a better life than the one I had. So right. pay attention cause I'm tired and I'm running out of money. Right. So I went to, uh, I went to college. No one in my family went to college. You went to work and I didn't want to go Joe. I said to my father, I said, well, why do I got to go to college? He goes, because you can. Right. That's why you can. And I did, you know, I went away for four years. I did it. I got out. I went out on a stage. I told my parents, well, we've done one of your things. Now <laughs> fine. And my father, to his credit, when I told him, after he saw me do stand-up, Joe, everything changed. Wow. Everything changed. He took a long drag over his lucky because I said, I want to be a comic. And he went, he goes, do it now. He goes, do it now before your life gets complicated. But if you're going to do this, you better give it everything you got. Because the worst feeling in the world is one day you're going to look in that mirror. There's going to be an old man looking back at you. And you don't ever want to think if I only tried that much harder. Wow. So that's like supportive. My family was just like, oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't say yeah. much. They came well, to the shows. Yeah. Yeah. But you know why I got the support? I got the support because I found out my father never got it. Right. So the one thing I've I've surmised is uh, from my childhood and doing therapy and all the shit that we, we we've spoken about before is something is either a warning or an example, right? You know, when when you're a kid, you're either going to do that thing or you're going to say I'm not doing that thing, right? Right. So my father, um, my great grandfather, I mean my, my my father's father, grew up in the depression. He didn't have anything, and my father got no support by any means 
you know, he, my father used to tell the story. He was like, you know, there's, when I look behind me, there's nobody there. So I got to take care of all this stuff. When I told my father I was going to marry your mother, I said, Pop, I'm going to marry Louise. You know, you know what Grandpa said to me? Oh, that's good. When? Let us know. We'll come. <laughs> that was it. So my father never had that support. So he always felt, uh, and I, I, I since learned this, um, you know, since he's passed away, he always, he always felt alone. He was always not scared, but he was always like, I got to do this. He was always focused and he was always afraid to be open with his feelings. He's like, I can't tell anybody what I'm afraid of. You kidding? They'll use it against me. The fuck is wrong with you? Right. So he was always, he had to be in his mind. He had to be that closed off and he had to be that, that armor in front of him to, to provide and protect the family. And so, he, 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 he pushed me to do what I wanted to do because he could never do what he wanted to do. Right. See, that's great. See, that's interesting because that's what happens with parents. It feels like when when people when you become a parent, you either do the same thing your parents did or you try to do the opposite. Like mm -hmm. you said, like it. So like some people, they got no support and no uh, connection or no love. And so they just that's they don't know how to do that. So they just pass that on. Yeah. And then some go, boy, I didn't get that. Let me make sure I give that mm -hmm. um, because my father, I think, didn't get much of that from his father at all. Like just that really Boston Irish Catholic kind of stone sure. face thing. And I think my dad struggles to give any of that. We always joke, you know, th there's not a lot of I don't have any sayings from my dad. He's like, my dad used to always say this. and That always stuck with me. There was none of that. There was just kind of I mean, we'd go to games together. He'd come to shows and laugh and play catch. But there wasn't a lot of uh life advice there was no mm -hmm. the thing with girls here's how sex works here's how well, college works <laughs> yeah i mean any kind of any kind of uh guidance. let me ask you when you made when you screwed up and you got in trouble what was that like uh that was more my mother my dad was never really involved in any of that and my mother would be sort of uh i don't know i didn't start getting in trouble until after school, after I graduated, and then I was like kind of mm -hmm. on my own, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I failed off the um, the track team. I was a big runner and uh, I failed like half my classes because I was just a bad student. I didn't know. I, again, I had no guidance. I didn't believe in homework. And when I failed off the track team, my mother was like, I'm so sorry. We should have paid closer attention to you, which in my mind, I was like, wow, what an amazing mother. But look, in therapy, my therapist was like, well, that's not what you need at all. First of all, she made it about herself. Yeah. She made it her. And also, there's no um, responsibility on your path. It's just her criticizing herself, blaming her. And then you say, so you're, no, you're nowhere in this equation. So that uh -huh. was an interesting thing, Mike. But you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have that awareness unless you went to therapy and, and have somebody pointed out to you. That, that's the thing that I learned is, and leaving the home. Do, did this for me too is you, you get out of that group thing and you get out of you get out of yourself and that's how you for me that's how i grew as a person but i came out here i came out here i was in a totally different business there was nobody to ask advice to and i would i had a tv deal so there was people that could make money off of me right so now everybody wants to be your friend when you got a deal on the table you know right. so i had to navigate all those those waters and with the with the tools i had uh at that time um, and my father was still, my father, even, even for someone who didn't know the business or didn't know that where I was, or had no, he still had pretty much, he, he still had enough, uh, life experience 
to know that, yeah, something don't smell right, you know? Right. Well, doesn't it feel like uh, Colin Quinn is a, f- a friend of mine. I assume you know Colin. I do. He, he always points out, you know, we think our business is so unique, but pretty much all the businesses are the same. Like every business has some amount of like, that guy's full of shit. That yeah. guy's trying to fuck you. That person got what they didn't, they didn't deserve that, but that's the way it is, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, so even from somebody that's outside of showbiz, this can be like, nah, that guy, he reminds me of this plumber that tried to yeah. fuck me. The only thing, our, our difference is, is the barrier to entry. It's not like if, you know, if, if, you're, if you build something, like if I make X amount of these phones and I sell them, I'll get this much money, you know? If I'm working for somebody else, I got to get this done by today and I get my paycheck. You know, this is like, even if you do all this work, even if you write a brilliant script, may never see the light of day. So there's there's that element of that, um, uh, like a lottery ticket element. So yes. that uncertainty, you'll believe people that are full of shit because the, the business has more uncertainty in, uh, th- than any other like nine to five kind of job you can get. Yeah, this is definitely, if, if you're, I always say this, if you're cool with, if you have no morals and you're cool with just fucking over people uh this is a great business to be in yeah yeah I can't, I can't i can't i can't you know i can't i can't live with myself i got first of all i'm catholic and i'm codependent so i'm, I'm fucked you know, <laughs> there's shitloads of guilt in my world you well, know i mean like some of these like but when you're coming up i assume long island you started on long island right you were I there did. for a while yeah mm-hmm. i mean i assume it's similar to massachusetts i mean there are so many people Mm-hmm. That are just, you got these gigs and you find a young comic who's new and you go, hey, if you come out here, it's it's 45 miles. I'll give you six chicken wings and 25 bucks. You do a half hour <laughs> and I'm going great. Are you kidding? Look, I shoot pool. Right. So we used to call it when you play with the older players, you used to call it buying somebody lunch because you would play with the older players. They would play with you. You got to buy them lunch and you just get better by playing with them. And they oh, would be all sharks in the pool hall. So you would call it buy and lunch. But any 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 business, if, if you're eager enough to get in there, you'll be taken. That's what an intern is. Hi, I'll work for nothing just to be <laughs> close to you. That's what it is. Right, right. Now, you know? let me ask you this. This is a little different um, uh, space to explore, I guess. But so you've done a lot of acting. You've been yeah. on a bunch of shows and stuff. What What is your anxiety with that? Like, I've done a few auditions, a couple commercials. To mm-hmm. me, there's nothing more anxiety-inducing then A, an audition, and B, trying to memorize lines, and then the idea of everyone relying on you. Do you ever have that fear that you're like, I am ruining this show. There's 500 people working on this thing, and I'm the worst part of it. Do you ever have that feeling? Because that's what I is in my head, even thinking about the idea of being on a show. No, you get anxiety. um, uh, It's different. The anxiety in acting. I'll I'll tell you, last time I had my first, um, I was on um, Nurse Jackie. Love scenes are always, they make you anxious right so it's my first i have to uh my first on-screen kiss with edie falco and i was terrified that my breath was going to be bad right so i ate an entire box of altoids joe i'm just just before we go on i'm in the dressing room i'm in makeup i'm just entire box of altoids but they were cinnamon so my mouth (laughs) is numb so i'm like i'm like i'm like she's gonna think i kiss like a fish i was like so yeah i get anxiety over um uh, love scenes, especially. I had to do a monologue where I had to cry. I was that 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 was a little anxious because here's the thing: when you guest star, um, when you guest star, you get in two takes and that's it. And you're gonna get and and you're not warmed up if you're not as, as a series regular. You know, you're working every day. You're all warmed up. They can throw you stuff. And working with Leary, 
you know, Dennis would, the script is just a suggestion. So a lot of times we just riffed an improv. That's good. Print that, you know? So, right. So when you're a guest star, you're only going to get two takes and they're going to give you, uh, and they're going to give you the shitty times because the stars don't want to get up early. You know, So you're going to get up early. So I was doing a criminal minds. I had a cry eight o'clock in the morning, you know? So I, I've been up since, you know, four, you go to this uh, hair makeup it was the first shot of the day. And I got to break down in tears because my daughter was abducted. And I know I'm only going to get two shots on my coverage, you know, so they, they'll shoot the master first. So you can, at least you can get acclimated. And then they come to this and then on the day they give you your coverage and bang, I got to make tears happen like this. And I know I'm only going to get two takes. So I did it, but le leading up to it, you're like, fuck, you know, and you're in this space where you have to get emotionally where you have to prepare and no one cares. <laughs> they don't get the sound guys is on the phone fighting with his girlfriend. People are talking. It's not like you can, you know, I need my moment. You just got to turn it on, turn it off. <laughs> yeah, I remember thinking that when I did uh, Letterman for the first time, <clears throat> or Late Night for the first time, Letterman for the only time, but thinking that, and it's such a fascinating thing with doing Late Night, because I always think if you're doing a set on Late Night, you're the most nervous person in the building. Yeah. Because the other guests are, it's Tom Cruise and whatever, who are Betty White or something. Mm -hmm. And then the rest are just crew members. They're there every day. So I was getting ready to go on and I'm like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Everything's riding on this. And the guy, oh, I want to think about what it was. It was something about a game. He's like, hey, where are you from Boston? Are huh? you Patriots? And literally the band is wrapping up. I'm about to go on. This is my big moment. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, the Jets, they just suck. And I'm like, what are you kidding me? Shut up, you piece of shit. This you can't is talk to me now. But it actually did help me. And this is before I was really diving into anxiety stuff, but it did help me take me out of the moment because you're kind of like, mm -hmm. what? And then now I'm looking at somebody in the face and yeah. responding to them and I'm, I'm taking in what they're saying. So it did put me in the moment. But I would feel that way. I, I think about it acting, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'm going to any day now, I'm going to be this famous actor, even though I'm not even auditioning or trying to be in anything. Mm -hmm. But I just imagine the night before being like, I have to cry. And if I can't cry, I'm going to ruin the show. Yeah. Do you ever I, have that? No, the, one of the nervous, I guess one of the nervous things, I had to meet Woody Allen. Like I went in to read um, for uh, his casting director and they go, great, come back, come back tomorrow and meet Woody. I went, Allen? <laughs> like, yeah, okay. So what happens is they give you the page and then they take it back. Right, so yeah. I couldn't, there's nothing to obsess over. I can't, couldn't put that nervous energy anywhere. You know, I've, I've learned that if I have the nervous energy, acknowledge it, there it is. Don't identify with it, but put the energy that, 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 that causes that into um, your technique to prepare. So if I'm going to be nervous, I'm, uh, anger, fear, it's all, it's all energy depending on what lens you put it through. Right. So I've learned, uh, or, or I'm fortunate enough to be aware that I can take that energy and channel it into my technique, or at least if I'm going to be up all night, let me do something, you know? Right. Productive with it. Since they took the script from me, I couldn't. Okay. So I'm a babbling mess, you know, the whole, the whole night. That was, that was pretty nerve wracking before that. Then, you know, as you do things, you'll get a script and I'll be like, okay, this is, I got a whole half page monologue here. So I'll start breaking that down new. And then I'll look when they board that, when am I shooting that? and then do a little bit each day. What helps me with my anxiety, if you're fortunate enough to know when you're going to have to perform or something, chip away at it, you know, a little bit each day, you know, even like when we do late night, what helped me, the first time I did late night, well, the first time I did, um, yeah, late night, I, I had to figure out the process because loss of structure 
triggers my anxiety. Right. So I always look at the overview of what I got to do. So I've always figured, okay, look, I'm going to put my best joke second to last. Because the last joke, I'm going to get a laugh. I'm going to say goodnight. The band's going to kick in. So if I get an applause break, I don't want to burn an applause break. Right. You know, so I put it second to last. So once I found that little thing, I went, oh, if I'm leading up to that joke, I know I got to get a laugh in the first 10 seconds because that's what the producers want. So you got to get a laugh in the first 10 seconds. I know I'm going to get from the first 10 seconds in that laugh. And then this is going to be my big laugh. And then my last joke essentially is going to be a tag because I get the benefit of the band. So once I figured those two things out, I went, all right, if I'm building to that bit, what bits build up to that? And that's how I would structure the set. Right. And once I figured that out, the anxiety kind of went away a little bit for the performance. Now it's just, now you're just turning wrenches, putting it together. And then you're going to have, my anxiety is going to be about um, remembering the work I did, but I had a technique to put that nervous energy in. And I figured this out um, early on, and it's helped me a great deal. I just did it again on Corden. I, I did James Corden. So you're in commercial, the band's playing. We'll be right back with Adam Farrar. It's just the way we do it. I'll stand back by the curtain. And while the band's playing in commercial, I'll pop my head out. And the audience goes, ah! and I go, I just want to say hello. I'm going to be out, all right? All right. And then I'd make a joke, like, don't you guys fuck this up for me? And they all laugh. Right. So now I've already got the laugh. I've already been in their presence. I've, I've invited them in. They like me because I took the time, and it settles me down. And I said, fuck, and they're not used to hearing that. Right, right. So they're, like, excited about it. So I, I, I stepped into the energy before it was on camera, if that makes any sense. I found that that calms me down. No, that does make sense. That's great. I might want to steal that. Um, you can. Because, yeah, I mean, I get hey, so baby, anxious. Next time you do late night, eat something first. You're no good when you're hungry. <laughs> I appreciate it. I will. Um, no, it is. I mean, those are so nerve-wracking. But that has helped me so much with um, Letterman with all those things. And the best advice I got for a late night was from uh, Nick Griffin, who I love, who I was talking to before Letterman. And I said, I, I need advice. And he said, uh, my advice is that you don't need my advice. And that was really helpful. The feeling of like, you're just a, you're just doing comedy. And if you do a set at the comedy cell or whatever, you're never like somebody slapped me in the face, hit me with some water. I, got, I can't go up there. You just yeah. go oh, right, going up there and, and the action. And that, that's the thing like you sort of talked about with anxiety, the actual action is the same thing. You walk mm -hmm. out, you stand there, you tell the jokes that you've told. Everything else is just mental. It's all just in your mind. And it helps to just say, oh, that's anxiety. I feel it in my chest. My arms are shaking a little bit because that's what happens when I'm anxious. My chest is beating faster. And to also say, of course, that's happening. That's what that's what should be happening. I'm on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, what also helped me was I changed the word um, think to notice. Because when you say, I think, then you subconsciously, you own that and you have to be that. And that is your identity. Uh, when I changed the word think to notice, I, it put me at a distance from it, from whatever the thought was, whatever the feeling was. It's I'm anxious because then the body just goes into anxious. I notice anxiety is like, oh, there it is. It's right. trying to get me to clench my teeth. I see you, you fucker. You know, so I put you in kind of a, a witness state or approaching a witness or, or the beginning of a witness state. So it, it starts separating you from your thoughts. Yeah, exactly. And, and noticing all those things and acceptance is such a huge part of it of to kind of go, all right, I'm, 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 I'm nervous. And then 
going, okay, I'll do this show nervous. I'm going to go do a set. I'll be nervous, yeah. and that's fine. My hands might be shaking a well, little bit. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you calm down when you get your first laugh? Typically, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. I mean, depending yeah. on this. I had one Conan where it was came in a time in my life where I was having panic attacks all the time and really going through oh, a sure. lot of anxiety. Yeah, and and so that one, I was leading up to it, like really feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a panic attack because that's like my biggest fear ever is, like I said, with acting with a late night, my fear is always I, I'm having a panic attack and I'm like, I can't go out there. And then I just picture, you know, uh, Conan getting a thing in his ear, be like, what do you mean he can't go out there? Like, and everyone's spreading right. around the audience is going, he, the guy can't come. The, the, there's no guest and the whole show's ruined. Yeah. Um, so you have that. Well, that's just, again, that's your thought. And you're, you're, you're so you're identifying with that thought and you, and you're, you're acting out. What if that happens? Yeah, exactly. And then you're identifying with the thought and you're down, down the road. And I have to remind myself that fear is just fear and my thoughts are not reality. Mm -hmm. But so I did do one, Conan set where I was really freaking out the whole time and it was actually like the best thing that ever happened to me because I was basically having an anxiety attack throughout the whole thing and I killed and it was great and mm -hmm. my therapist was like well that's great because that means your worst fear of your life came true and it was totally fine nobody even noticed it and yeah. after that it makes you kind of fearless you're like so what's the worst case scenario I have an anxiety attack I had one of those on television and was fine yeah. So that really had, was like a great moment. I had a panic attack the night, uh, while I was shooting Top Gear. Um, and the morning, it didn't go away. I still had it in the morning. I was still in that state, you know, that, that hyper state. Yeah. And I had, to, I had to work, so we're on camera. I drove a Ferrari 188 miles an hour that day. An F12 Berlinetta. And I had to do a speed run. And I got it to a bug. And the adrenaline um, blew the panic attack out of the water. Uh, cause I remember getting in the car, I'm like, I got to work. I'm not going to tell anybody, you know? So I'm in this car. It's gorgeous car. And, uh, I, I, you talk to the camera and then, all right, Adam, you know, they, they clear it and the stunt guy goes, green, 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 go. <laughs> and as the adrenaline, <laughs> the adrenaline kicks in, I, it was a weird thing. It's like the adrenaline, like it was, it, it was like a tree growing up through the sidewalk, which is something I always love as a kid. Cause like the, the panic attack was the concrete and the tree just went, fuck you. <laughs> right, right, right. So that, that was an experience of just not giving into the panic. Right. Um, do they, let me ask you this. Do they come in waves for you? Cause I was in a situation. My dad was, was ill. I was shooting a movie at the time. So I had that anxiety of working. And then my dad got diagnosed uh, with cancer while I was shooting that movie. And, um, and I was, I was, it was coming to an end of a relationship. So all this shit was coming in on me and the machine didn't know what to do. Cause I was still working. So when you're working as an actor, as a comic, you know, part of my function is you just take your rib cage, you rip it open. You go, Hey, here's my beating heart. Cause that's what right. my job is as an actor to see this unfettered emotion. Right. So I think because that was open and all this shit was happening, that's when, a series of panic attacks really just, just got me for like almost a month. Yeah. So I think I've had it a few times and it's never just one. Cause once you have one or in the past, once I had one, then what happens is the fear of having another comes and then that kind of causes them to come. Um, so I was having them a bunch when I was in my early twenties and I think uh -huh. I just felt, you know, wayward and was doing comedy, but not making any money and was drinking uh -huh. too much and, was uh all right joe let's back up there i mean that might have had something to do with it 
Well, that, but then, I mean, I had it later after I had, that was certainly a lot to do with it. But then later in sobriety, I was having them, but it turned out I was, it was like leading up to my marriage. I was getting married in a few months and mm-hmm. which is like my therapist says, like, even if something's positive, it can be traumatic. Like if you, if you sell a show and it goes gangbusters and you're the number one star, oh, that's yeah. traumatic, How even if it's great. Going? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Going. Yeah. So uh, it was like leading up to that. And I think there was a lot of anxiety um, anyways, leading up to that. And then a lot of family stuff and all that good stuff. So I started having panic attacks pretty regularly for a couple months. And um, mm-hmm. I ended up going to therapy. And that's where with my therapist now that I love, who I talk about on this show a lot, Alan, who sees all the New York comics. He sees about 35 comics. and But he he told me like kind of what we're talking about is, accepting a panic attack as counterintuitive as it is, is Mm. the best tool against it because your instinct is to fight it and go, Oh my God, I have to stop this. And the more you try to stop it, you resist the more accepting anything is the key to, you know, yeah. Uh, Italians have a tough uh, surrender was a tough fucking word for me too, Joe, because I was misinterpreting it. I'm not surrendering my will, my ideals, my character, what I believe in. I'm just surrendering the idea of how I think things should be. Right. So I can see what is. Once I came up with that definition, I was like, ah, okay. Right, right. No, so that was what, with a panic attack, I would start feeling it in my neck or my hands shaking or or having trouble breathing. And then you start getting like this tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. And I would go, oh my God, I have to, I have to stop. I cannot have a panic attack right now. If I start having a panic attack, can you imagine? And then that in itself is panic. And basically it's just taking you completely out of the moment. It's the ultimate outside of the Mm -hmm. moment. And so the the best tool for it is to go, oh, okay, here's that thing. Like you said, here it comes. This is where I get shaky. And and understanding that a panic attack can't kill you. It just can't. You know what I mean? Your heart is just beating faster, which is like if you were exercising. Like if I was running full speed, my heart would be beating the same pace. Uh So it's not like my heart's going to explode. My hands are shaking the same way they would if I was cold. And the rest is just mental if I was you know, nervous or on a ledge looking down and it's all just, and it slowly dissipates. And now I haven't had one in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Mine always would manifest uh, when I was trying to sleep. It's like the fight or flight mechanism. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody taped down the, 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 the fight button, you know? So I'd be like, huh, you know, I'd get that a lot. Right. Right. Yeah. I've had that. I mean, that was in that same period I had, about like twice I've had it of like insomnia and it was just anxiety. Like I compared it to like the yips, like an athlete when like Chuck Knobloch can't throw the ball to first base. And that's how I feel. I'm like, I'm not, I don't know how to sleep. I don't know how to, I don't understand the physical and exactly like athletes in any sport, a kicker, a golfer or whatever, getting the yips, that feeling of like, I just don't know how to do it. As I lay down, I'm like, it's not going to happen. And again, it's just recognizing this is just anxiety. It's just anxiety, which is something that a ton of people had said to me before. And I hated them. People would say, ah, you're just anxious. And you're like, you piece of shit, you don't understand. And sometimes you just have to hear it from the right person. For me, it was like a mental health professional going, that's just anxiety. Yeah. Like, right. It's just anxiety. Yeah. It's once, once something is defined and, and you, oh, it's this, then there's a protocol for it and you know what you're dealing with. Again, that is, in some ways is the structure that I need. I need to know that this is a thing. This is what the thing is. This is how the thing affects you. You can give into the thing or not, you know, or you can have a structure of doing stuff. So I always get the, um, you ever read The Art of War, Sun Tzu? 
No, I haven't, but I, I know I know a lot about basically it. Basically, the book is know the terrain. And that, that, that phrase always stuck with me. Know the terrain. Know what you're dealing with. So once I can figure that out, I got a half a shot, you know? Right. And that's a, another piece of wisdom I got that um, I think I shared recently on here was that when anytime you're really anxious or angry or scared or whatever, ask yourself, what am I trying to control? Because mm-hmm. um, that's a big part of it, anxiety and fear and all that stuff is trying to control other people's reactions to you or, yeah. you know, world affairs or somebody or a relationship, basically somebody's feeling towards you or the way somebody's behaving. And it happens most of the time I'm feeling that anger or uh, anxiety. I go, what am I trying to control? I'm like, oh, I'm trying to control somebody in the industry to give me something or the yeah. audience laughing or somebody to stop you know, call me an ugly piece of shit on Twitter, whatever it is, you know, mm. all those classic things or my wife to, you know, blow me or whatever it is. Some, I'm trying to control something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always, I, uh, I ask myself, uh, what do I have control over? Cause that puts it into taking action. Um, because that's, what's what I can do. I, I, I learned this. I learned that. Um, and I had to learn this cause I keep kicking myself when I make a mistake or I used to, I still do. I used to, but, now I tell myself uh, I'm grateful that I've learned rather than angry with myself that I didn't know. Right. Uh, because th- I had to fix that fucking thing in my head because of what I was kicked myself because my father would always, I got this speech from my father like this. He's like, listen, you got to be smart. All right. You got to think six steps ahead. All right. Because the wolves are always at the door. You understand me? I was six. <laughs> right. So that pressure, but that was his fear projected on me and me wanting his approval and that adapting that, that behavior and that, 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 that pattern in my head, that, that learned pattern in my head. I'm like, fuck, I I'm kicking a shit out of myself that I didn't see that coming. You know, you should have seen the pandemic coming. Fuck what? You know? So I had to change, I had to change the statement and I still struggle with this because I, I forget where I read it, but the, the mind, um, takes the last word you say as a command. So it's helpful to end every sentence with a positive call to action because that's what the mind remembers and it'll do it. That's why um, when you say, what am I trying to control? Uh, I always take the positive of what do I have control over and then give myself the command to do it. Like, well, I can only put, you know, I can only, I can only submit the script on time and then right. the rest is out of my control. Right. Boy, this is really helpful. This is a great part. Not for me. I'm a fucking <laughs> um, But the, the, the thing about your dad reminded me too of, I was talking about this with my wife, wife last night is like with anxiety and like how you came up to be, I, I grew up very anxious. And you look at little things where I remember driving to like Fenway Park and would drive through a, a, a bad neighborhood and my mother would be like, all right, roll up the windows, lock the door. Are the doors locked? Oh, yeah. And being five or six and being like, doors locked? What? Someone's going to open the door? Yeah. What? My mother would <laughs> yell at me when it comes, what are you doing? Oh, for God's sake, put on a jacket. I'm cold. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Right. I mean, what happens is when you, when you have, uh, it's an ego thing. When you, um, know a piece of information that's why gossip was a big gossip in my family because it it fed the ego of we're above somebody else because we know something they don't and we're doing something without them you know it's just it's it's a classic way to feed one's ego yeah exactly and with gossip too my family was similar and also 
it got deep in my head that as soon as you leave the room, everyone's talking about you because that's yeah, all anyone did. So it's, it was everybody. My mother would do this. Emma, look, I'm going to tell you, don't tell anybody. Which means everybody fucking knows already. Right. She did the same thing with everybody. Right. You know? Yeah. So now it's it's in your head. And then, of course, show business, that's, I mean, then we go into a business where literally everybody's judging you in the moment. That's comedy. Yeah. I mean, that's the very idea of comedy. And that other thing I had to learn is to separate your identity from your art. That's what was a young con. That's fucking hard, you know? Right. And then later, I, I adapted it later because I needed to, I needed to, and, and, and acting helped me do this. I don't know. This, do you have this fear? I had this fear. I had this fear and, and guys I came up with who were comics who wanted to be actors had this fear as well. I didn't want to learn acting. I didn't want to let go because I felt I wouldn't be funny anymore. Right. And I, I quickly had to get rid of that because I was getting more and more acting gigs where I needed a technique to get to do the job, you know? So I had to uh, face that fear, that unfounded fear in my head. And everything opened up as a as a writer and a comedian because now I'm not seeing things just from my point of view. When I write stand up, I was always the one that had the punchline. You know, when right. I would tell a story in my act. Now, anyone can have the punchline. It just opened up a whole thing when I wanted to address a topic. And in my podcast too, you know, because I do my podcast with my wife um, and my two friends, and um, and so so that that conversational thing helped me a great deal as a comic too. Right. Well, I think this was a great conversation and great comedy in it. I think I thought I, I laughed a I, lot. I, I felt you were distracted the whole time. Um, oh, well, that's, that's very hurtful. And I'm going to think about it the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you ate before we did this, my friend. It was, and thank you for doing my show. Um, uh, and uh, I, uh, I look forward to seeing you when I'm back in New York. Yeah, where where else can they tell the people where they can see you? Where, where your Adam Ferrar on all socials. Uh, my podcast is called the Adam Ferrar Podcast. Thirty minutes you'll never get back. Joe List is on there. I will certainly let you know when, when that episode drops. Um, I don't know when this is going to air. Uh, just give you some past guests I've had: um, Michael Imperioli, Nathan Lane, Edie Falco, Joe Buck. If you're into sports, oh, I love uh, Joe Buck. Uh, yeah, Joe Buck was fun. Boston do. Uh, he was uh, my friend uh, from Boston. Who was had had an issue with him, as most people in Boston do, because of the World Series. Um, people, uh, not to go off on a side note here, but uh, as we're wrapping up, but Joe, people hate Joe Buck. I don't understand it. Everybody, I read social media. People, everyone thinks Joe Buck is against their team. They're like he loves yeah. the, the Yankee Red Sox games. All the Yankee people are like he's a Red Sox lover. Yeah, like, I had. Going is that um, more food? What do you do is eat. You my, eat and worry. That's what my, goes on at Casa de List. Luckily, my wife is here to get the door. But no, everyone thinks he's, uh, but I'm like, I think he's like unbelievable. I think he is like pitch perfect. He was amazing. Great. I'll be honest with you. Every national sports broadcaster, half the audience hates him. Half right. the audience is going to hate him, depending on who's winning. Right. But he was great. His father, um, his father, I, I brought up the, the speech he made at Bush Stadium after 9 11 because mm -hmm. his father gave the country permission to enjoy baseball again. Right. And he was just, uh, he was so gracious. He was a, a great guest. I had on um, him. I had a Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon from PTI as well. Um, you know, a bunch of comics have, have been on. Uh, I thank you again for doing it. And um, yeah, check it out. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Podcast 30 minutes. You'll never get back. Awesome. Adam, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. It was so much fun and you always make me laugh. So thank you. You too, my friend. Be well, be happy. Thanks, Adam. 
Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts. <laughs>